Hello, my name is James McDermott. I'm a writer, teacher and 26-year-old cisgendered man. As a gay man, I love men, but as a gay man, I dislike men too. As a camp man who talks and writes about his feelings, I have always questioned stereotypical masculine ideals. As stereotypical men aren't camp, don't talk about their feelings and certainly don't create plays and poems about them. As a 26-year-old, I feel I've learned and unlearned lots about being a man, but at 26, still have lots to learn and unlearn about being my own kind of man. In this podcast series, I will talk with several people to explore masculinity, try and work out why we love and hate men, whether there are such things as masculine ideals, how creativity can help men explore and express themselves, and what men still have to learn and unlearn about being their own kind of man. In this episode, I'm joined by Alan Byers. Alan, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So can I ask you to start by um, introducing yourself and telling the listeners why you wanted to come onto the podcast today? I am a social worker in the United States in the state of Utah. I uh, work with mostly victims of domestic violence and sexual assault, um, but I also cover other um, victimizations of different crimes here. Um, I also have been working kind of on a side project um, of a blog and podcast called Feminist Masculinity, uh, taken from uh, feminist theorist Bell Hooks um, in the United States. Um, her concept of feminist masculinity has really always interested me, this idea that um, we have always talked about, at least uh, in my experience, we've always talked about um, kind of toxic masculinity or patriarchal masculinity, these, these old traditional forms. Um, and it's not enough to just critique those, according to Bell Hooks. Um, she writes that we need to create an alternative. Um, and so I'm always interested in finding out what that alternative is, um, discussing what it might look like to have um, masculinity that's informed by feminism, that's informed by um, movements for social justice. Um, and so that's really something that's central to what I've been trying to do, and it's central to the way that I do my work as well. Um, and so I was really, really interested to come on and have these discussions because I think it's critical that masculinity is critiqued and then that we also talk about uh, the alternatives and what those might look like. Can I ask where your thinking's at at the moment in terms of how we might create an alternative masculinity outside of just conversation? Oh, wow. I mean, this this question, I mean, do you have three, three days? We could talk about, um, <laughs> <laughs> we could run an entire conference off of that, right? Outside of conversation, I really, I really do believe that conversation is the, the first step. Mm. And I think that that conversation has to be values-based. I think the more we discuss um, masculinity in terms of this is bad, masculinity is bad, or uh, traditional masculinity is bad, we can tend to alienate folks um, from the conversation who would otherwise join in. And so I think having the conversation from a values standpoint, understanding, okay, what do we as men, what do we as men and women both value? What do we see as important to our lives and central to the way that we want to interact with each other? And I think most people will agree on, on those values. 
they'll agree that we want to be built around foundations of trust and uh, community, Mm -hmm. that human relationships are important, that we want to be healthy, that we um, have values around justice, that we want everybody to be treated equally. And once we start to have those conversations about values, about what we share and what we think is important for us as human beings, I think that's a great jumping off point for us to say, and how does our understanding of masculinity, and we can include femininity as well, how does it inform our ability to then live up to those values? Is masculinity helping us engage in meaningful community? Is it helping us have meaningful relationships? Uh, Or is it getting in the way? Is it getting in the way of those things that we have discussed as our values? I think that's a really great place to start that conversation. And I think in terms of where it goes um, or where it can be discussed or um, talked about other than in just conversations like this, I really believe that it starts from a a personal level of doing the work. Um, I think a lot of men are resistant to the idea of um, looking inward at their own masculinity, obviously because masculinity doesn't encourage sometimes levels of emotional and um, other forms of introspection. But I think doing that work on ourselves on a personal level, um, I think for me that was reading I really fell into uh, while I was at university um, working on my undergraduate degree I started a minor in women and gender studies and it was reading these writings. It was reading and understanding feminist theory that started to awaken that work in me that I started to uh, critique my own life and look back on it and say, Oh, what, in what ways did my masculinity get in the way um, and cause harm to me, Mm -hmm. to others um, or, or even just dissatisfaction, right. Um, That I didn't feel, like I had been living my life in a way that was connected to the things that I value. So that personal work I think is important that um, for me was reading for others. It might be YouTube videos. It might be listening to podcasts like this. It might be discussions around at at a pub with friends. Like they can be anything, but it's that, it's that first work um, that you have to do personally for yourself. And then I think it's about engaging yeah, uh, hopefully younger and younger individuals with this. Mm. I think so much of our work, um, like I said, is this personal work of unlearning the things that we have learned um, that have gotten in the way of the way we want to be living. How great would it be if we could catch that before it happens? How mm. great would it be if instead of having to unlearn this as an adult or um, a teenager, what would it be like if our playgrounds and um school classrooms uh, were connected to those values from such a, uh, an early age. And so finding ways to get that information out in a way that's palatable um, to younger people. And uh, I really have a lot of hope in this younger generation. I, I, ever, I always hear about things that little boys are allowed to do now. And I hear and I go, Oh my goodness, what, what would that have been like if I could have uh, done that as a, as a young boy? Um, and I, and I think that a lot of people are doing that work, but I think it's important for us to engage in it. Um, and it might start by being an example to a younger person of, yeah. of 
more connected or um, expansive views of masculinity. It might be having conversations with uh, children, nieces and nephews, and uh, parents having conversations with their kids. Um, I just think it's super important that we get this to younger and younger people as well. I think that's a fantastic response. Thank you for sharing all that with me. I think that idea of starting with yourself by questioning your values and asking if your actions and deeds marry those values is a really good place to start. I think I remember chatting to my therapist early in our sessions about that, that sense of when you're thinking about how to act in a situation, ask who is the person you want to be and how would they uh, act in the situation? And eventually, if you keep acting like that, you will become that man or that person you want to be. I think that's how I've dealt with that sense of turning intellectualized idea about gender or conversations about gender into deeds is just thinking, okay, how should I respond in this situation? I think there's something really interesting in that sense of instead of unlearning gender norms, which is something that's emerged in every episode of this podcast, everyone's been on their own journey of unlearning or relearning, is maybe starting in classrooms and having conversations about gender, having classes on gender identity as part of uh, some subject, be that science or uh social skills, whatever it might be, I think that could be a fantastic way forward of how we turn uh, conversation into deed and how we get these conversations to younger and younger people. So that said, I would love to chat about your relationship with gender in the classroom when you were younger, say about six years old. What was your understanding of masculinity and identity around six? I, I can't talk about gender from my childhood or really any time without talking about the religious context in which I was raised. Uh, I was born and raised in Utah in the United States. Um, for religious scholars among you, you will know that Utah um, was founded and settled, um, colonized by um, what are now called the LDS or uh, the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, more commonly referred to as Mormons. So I grew up Mormon from a very young age, and I was born in 1995 in October, a scant, I think, two weeks, maybe one week before I was born. The prophet at that time for the Mormon church stood up um, at the pulpit of General Conference, and he read out a document, and that document is titled, The Family, A Proclamation to the World. And in it, it outlines um, the church's stance and what the prophets and apostles of the Mormon church literally believe to be God's word on gender and on sexuality. It outlines and says that women are primarily responsible for the nurture of their children and um, essentially says they're supposed to be stay-at-home moms. It says that men are responsible to preside in the home, that they're in charge, right? And it, and it has some language about women being equal partners in that, but it's very clear as well that men are supposed to be the leaders. And that is true for the church as well, that um, the priesthood, the, the leadership of the church is exclusively male, and then any women leaders are only allowed to be leaders of other women or um, children under the age of 12. As soon as a boy turns 12, he's given what's called the Aaronic Priesthood, and all of a sudden he is now outranking in terms of leadership any adult women in the church. And so that's the backdrop that I'm born into in Utah is this kind of doubling down on traditional gender 
um, roles and norms. It also outlines a belief that marriage is between a man and a woman only. This document is um, literally just about a week older than I am. And at six, we're reciting it in primary. I'm, I'm in... Um, I'm in my Sunday school lessons and we're reciting this document. We're trying to learn the concepts uh, that are taught in it. It's a, it's a part of who I am. So I have these beliefs as a six-year-old of boys are in charge and boys are better um, in some way. And I don't have quite that strong of an articulation of it. Um, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not the bully who's thinking that girls are bad or anything like that, but I have it very clear. It's very, very salient in my mind that men are in charge and that, um, women are supposed to stay home and make babies and men are supposed to go out and do that. And that there is no such thing outside of that in, in my little six-year-old head, somebody who would be non-gender, non-binary or non-conforming or somebody who would be transgender um, that doesn't exist in my little six-year-old head. And the only way that God wants it to be is a man and a woman and in a context where the man is in charge. And so, yes, I'm in my school classrooms and I think that I was learning the lessons. Um, boys don't cry. Boys are supposed to be competitive and like sports. I uh, remember um, being more interested in walking around with um, some of the girls in my classroom and just like talking and making up stories during um, a time on the playground mm -hmm. as a kid more than wanting to play basketball and those things. Um, but then uh, as soon as you get uh, past six years old and get into 10, 11, 12, um, I've, I've learned that masculine doctrine much more and I'm, I'm exclusively on the soccer field. I'm on that field or I'm on the basketball court or I'm playing football because I'm not allowed to do the other anymore. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. Uh, can I ask about how, what you were memorizing at six, whether or not it was becoming something you were learning or just memorizing, uh, how was what you were internalizing shaping your thoughts and shaping your actions if you like yeah uh, that's a really great question it's it's hard sometimes to convey um growing up in mormon utah mm. to uh folks who have uh, other religious backgrounds because uh, the mormon church is unique in a number of ways and one of the ways that it is most unique is that it's a very very high demand religion and so when i'm memorizing these things when i'm um participating in this church and in these doctrines, um, I'm really participating even from a young age. I remember being six years old um, and it would be um, my family's job to clean the church on um, a particular Saturday. And so I um, am very young and very little. And so while my mother would be vacuuming, um, say the, the halls, I am running uh, underneath the pews with my um, little duster and I'm dusting off to make sure that the pews are clean. All of those actions in the church are very, very, um, from a very young age, are encouraged that there be lots of involvement. And so I think I hadn't yet internalized it to the point where I felt like guilty for 
um, hanging out with um, girls on the playground. Um, those things, I think, came less from my church um, at that age and more from the ostracization uh, of of the other boys at that age where they, oh, you're being dumb, you're playing with the girls. And so then it was learning how to do things that the boys wanted to do so mm-hmm. that I wouldn't be made fun of or ostracized from that. I want to credit my mother here in this moment um, because she really encouraged, she saw that I had an imagination and a very strong um, kind of story oriented side. And so she really encouraged me to read and she would read with me at that age a lot. Um, And um, I I really credit her with kind of keeping my little, uh, my little imagination um, writer, reader soul alive Mm -hmm. during that portion of my life Um, that she really nurtured that and wanted that to be a very, very important part but just to give you context for what it felt like to um, have that kind of document the family proclamation, as it's known, uh, be um, efficacious in my life. Um, by the time uh, a little bit beyond six, by the time I'm about eight or nine years old, um, my mother had been a school teacher. Um, I'm the youngest of five boys. So early on in my parents' marriage, she had been a school teacher along with my dad. Um, and then she had gone to be a full-time stay-at-home mom once I was born and well I guess once my older brother was born and once I had gotten to about eight or nine she figured I was mostly um, becoming more self-reliant I could be left alone at the house with the older boys um, that kind of a thing and so she went back to teaching Mm. And little eight-year-old me, I can't remember what exactly happened. I probably scraped a knee or um, had some other sort of minor playground injury as an eight-year-old. And I um, couldn't call my mom from the principal's office. She was at work. I couldn't go to, um, I couldn't go to the office and call her. And I remember thinking she's not doing her job. Like her job was to be a stay at home mom and be my mom. Mm. And that's what the documents, that's what the, that's what God wants. And now she's not there. She's somewhere else doing other things. Um, And that was a, a, a thing that was totally for granted for me. And I think to probably 90% of the school that I went to at the time um, who were, I mean, uh, probably probably something like 94% Mormon. Um, and 90% of those Mormons had moms who were full-time stay-at-home moms mm. that didn't do anything else. And they would, I mean, if they had, if they had skinned their knees, their mom would come right over and comfort them in the school or they, they'd be able to call. Um, so even, even as young uh, around that time, I, I already knew what the rules were, um, and what the roles were to be played. And, uh, I had some, I had some early resentment for my mother at that time, mm-hmm. um, which I find, uh, very shameful now looking back to think that, um, she was teaching and doing what she loved. And I just wanted her to only care about, I wanted her just be on standby at home <laughs> waiting for me to have a problem so that she could swoop in and fix it. And, um, how childish that that idea was at the time and and also how like 
I think it was reinforced by my religion. I remember uh, my father was a house husband and my mum went out to work and was the sole breadwinner. And I remember so similarly kind of hurting myself at primary school and being mad that other people's mums will come in because they were the, the kind of predominantly then it was still more stay-at-home mums and stay-at-home dads. And I always used to get really frustrated that my mum was out working. I think the other thing that struck me in hearing you say that is it wasn't teachers or authority figures that were reprimanding you for kind of breaking the rules about what it means to be a boy. It was other boys. And there is that sense of just as you were reprimanded by uh, male friends at school for not being the boy you thought you had to be through that filter of uh, Mormon doctrine, it was the same with me and campness. I would be called out not by teachers or girls, but it would be by other boys for kind of breaking that breaking that script, deviating from that text of what it means to be a young boy. So I'm really, really interested in asking about how your relationship with masculinity changed as you neared kind of 16, especially, as you said, kind of, I think you said it was either 12 or 14 when uh, when you become a boy in Mormon doctrine, you then have authority over women uh, when you hit 12 or 14. I'm really interested to hear how that manifested itself alongside puberty and your changing masculinity. Right. I... Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, it's it's interesting that you've chosen the the age 16 because it's a it's an important thing in um mormon culture again the age 16 is um the time when you're 12 as a mormon boy um i i i always think um when you're a mormon in utah it can kind of feel like a conveyor belt you go along and at these ages there's these milestones uh, and you're just kind of stamped with (laughs) the next thing so when you're 12 it's like uh, stamp okay now you are a deacon in the ironic priesthood right and i just knew that that was coming and then at 14 you're stamped again okay now you are a teacher um in the ironic priesthood and then at 16 you become a priest um in the ironic priesthood and that title um uh, affords you more privileges again and and things the the age 16 is also important in Mormon culture because um the prophet again, sometime in the, I guess, early or mid nineties, um, decides that, uh, God wants him to reveal to all of the youth in the, um, world that are members of his church. Uh, he decides that God wants all of those kids to not date anyone or go on any kind of romantic date with anybody until they are 16 years old. And then at 16 years old, they're not supposed to date like, like uh, we say, go steady. They're not supposed to pair off, become exclusive or committed. They're supposed to like go on fun dates um, in groups uh, just to kind of get to know people. Um, And then they're expected once they're adults to then, pair off and get married and start making babies as quickly as possible. I mean, uh, the number of people that I know, especially women who were encouraged to get married at 18 um, and have their first child within that first year of marriage is intense. So that's kind of the backdrop of, of turning 16 for me in Utah Mormon culture was um, I had, I was starting to finally date. I was going to be hanging out with women in a romantic or um, context of liking them. I am straight, um, a cisgender man. Uh, And so that was kind of where my my head was. 
And I, at that time, was really experiencing all of the things that come along with that that are that I think um, we would call normal uh, for most uh, straight youth um, around the world. That there's uh, not knowing how to you know, you're awkward and you're not knowing how to negotiate those first mm-hmm. couple moves um, into that world. And in Utah, for folks who were not heterosexual, who were experiencing some other form or some other uh, sexual orientation other than heterosexual, that was totally taboo and unallowed, totally forbidden. And so I am conscious of my privilege in that moment because I was able to just kind of go with it right as soon as I turned 16 but I was encouraged to do that and so my I didn't consider my authority and I think that's one of the things that is so I I'll say dangerous about that conveyor belt concept that Mm -hmm. I just spoke about is that I don't think the young men and boys are in the in the Mormon church are aware of that dynamic until later I don't think that they they, they understand that they have authority and that they are special in some way, that they're part of this club, but I think they just take it for granted that men have the priesthood and women don't. And I had never even considered any arguments that might suggest that that was unequal or unfair because um, this doctrine of complementarianism, uh, this idea that men and women are equal, but they just have different roles um, was so heavily taught. And so as I'm starting to date and I'm starting to spend more time with women again, I'm starting to be allowed to spend time with young women. I honestly kind of opened up, had more friends that were women and had more opportunities for openness and emotional connection. And I got to live a little more honestly during that time. But I totally took it for granted that I had power that they didn't, that uh, on Sunday, I was up on the stand blessing the bread and the and the and the water we use water in the LDS church there's no alcohol allowed that was then given to the congregation I was the one blessing that while they were sitting in the pews and that and I didn't realize what that message might have sent um, it was just so ingrained in me at that point that I think it, I just took it totally for granted that I had that authority in that place um, mm-hmm above women and I had been taught at that age all what we call the three P's right that um, I don't know that that's necessarily church-wide but it was definitely kind of the vernacular in my um, local congregation was it was the role of men to preside provide and protect that they were supposed to lead they were supposed to be the breadwinners and they were supposed to protect and a lot of the conversations that I had around dating were in context of it was my job to protect my date. And here's the kicker. It was my job to protect my date from myself a lot of the time. Mm. The way that my masculinity had grown in that point was um, very similar to many other patriarchal structures. And one of the things that I was taught was that like women were more pure and good, uh, especially sexually, and men were a little more base. They were a little more we were talked about what was called the natural man, which comes from a verse in the Book of Mormon saying that the natural man is an enemy to God, that um, left to your own devices, you will just like do terrible things and be sexually loose and 
drink alcohol and uh, party and do all these things that were strictly forbidden. Um, and so uh, I remember reading, there's a little pamphlet the church puts out called For the Strength of Youth. And there's a section about dating and it says, like, never use your date for your lustful desires and make sure that you protect your date. And that that was kind of the backdrop. I was a little bit afraid of my own just simple sexuality, the, the sexuality that everybody experiences. I was afraid of it because I was constantly being taught that if I didn't watch it, if I didn't control it, bridle my passions was another phrase we were using a lot, that I would harm people. And what I realize now, looking back in hindsight, is that the first step into actually having a good level and healthy relationship with one's sexual nature is to acknowledge it in a healthy way. And I think the the fear-mongering that I was taught led me to be so fearful that I think I was more damaging and more harmful to my own sexuality and to others as a result of this kind of hyper um, sexualized message that I was getting that I was some sort of animal that responded to stimulus and unless I yielded to Christ and the spirit of God that I was going to harm people um, it really was a hard thing for me uh, during that time to feel like I was that uh, base and it was my job to protect uh, people from myself and I think that I here want to uh, just acknowledge briefly that uh, while I have all of this critique and issue with the Mormon church with a capital C, um, the the prophets and apostles that lead the church and the organization that exists out of Salt Lake City and runs the global church, I, I don't have that much of a problem with the little C church, with, with my uh, the, the ward that I grew up in, this little congregation. Um, I think I did have some leaders that taught me better and that encouraged me to be more in touch with myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think it always felt like they were a little bit going against the script, mm. if that makes sense. And I think it became very stark when I was 16 and dating um, just how gendered all of those roles were, how it was my job now as the, as the man to ask uh, women on dates and that it was my job to keep them safe from me the entire time we were together. Thank you so much for sharing that story with me. There's so much to unpack in there. I think that sense of how hearing how what you've memorized simply as text at six had now been internalized and affected your deeds and your mental health and your relationship with your sexuality at 16 is really striking to hear. And again, those similarities between uh, being a straight boy in Utah or a gay boy in Lincolnshire in the Norfolk, that sense of religion had both made us scared of ourselves and uh, what religion had taught us about masculinity had both made us scared of uh, our identities as men. If you don't mind me asking, without breaching their confidences, I'm really, really curious to know if you did know anyone in Utah when you were growing up who was a gay boy or a queer boy, who was uh, struggling against that system as well, and exactly how you might navigate that if you're a teenager in that system in Utah. Right. Uh, This is a great question um, because I think it was um, some of the earliest uh, beginnings of my move to eventually leave the church. Um, while I, um, I recognize the solidarity that you just mentioned, um, 
of feeling like there were religious influences and other influences that made us scared of ourselves. I do greatly acknowledge um, my privilege, especially in Utah as a straight man, that it was, I was able to do everything that I was supposed to. I was following the program perfectly. um, And I knew uh, several who could not. And the anguish that that brought um, for context, um, the highest ordinance or sacrament of the Mormon church is to be married to uh, between a man and a woman exclusively um, in a temple um, of the church. And there are, you know, something like 150 something temples around the world. Um, and th- the LDS church literally teaches um, all the way from the earliest foundations of Joseph Smith that being sealed or bound together as husband and wife and creating an eternal family or a family that will endure forever um, is the way that you become like God, that you, uh, that God um, wants you to experience that form of, happiness and family life and creation and those things. Me always having that in my future, understanding that I would one day get married in the temple and that um, I was going to be sealed and have that highest and holiest um, uh, sacrament performed for me and uh, my future wife. That was a big driving factor for the way that I interacted with my church. I had friends who were um, friends and family members who were unable to see that vision. They look forward. Um, they might still be believing in the church, trying to reconcile their. And at this time, the church was using language like same-sex attraction. People are struggling with same-sex attraction, right? They're not gay. They're struggling with same-sex attraction. Um, that was kind of the rhetoric that I had, which. Uh, really makes me want to like throw things right now (laughs) in this moment. Um, But at the time I bought into it, um, I had many gay friends um, uh, from different uh, gender identities who looked into their future and just saw the scariest question mark they could think because they, because they believed they wanted to stay in the church. They wanted to be true to their beliefs, but there was no way that they, could receive that holiest ordinance, that holiest sacrifice, um, sacrament, I should say, unless they made that sacrifice to live in a straight marriage for, for eternity to somebody that they're not attracted to. And that started to re, um, my little 16 year old self, um, saw that as unfair. And I was very concerned with fairness at that age. Um, I think a lot about uh, Neil Peart, uh, drummer for Rush, the band uh, you, you may know from the 70s and 80s and on. Uh, he always said that you've got to make your 16-year-old self proud, that he, he believed that 16-year-olds had a, you know, they have a really very pure form of moral uh, compass. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I had that too, where um, as much as I could, I started to really start to think more progressively in high school and started to really be uh, oriented towards ideas about fairness. And it just seemed unfair. And why would God do that? And I really struggled with it. And I had to find 
uh, piece in kind of the explanations that were being given by my members of my local congregation. But I definitely knew that that was an injustice and I, I saw it as such. And I thought that maybe there was something wrong. And that was the first time I ever entertained the idea that the prophet might be wrong about something. And for context, I mean, this was, um, you know, uh, 16, 17, 18 is, is for me, uh, 2012, 2013, 2014 in the United States. And I mean, the next year gay marriage would be legalized across the nation in 2015. So that's, that's, I mean, the hot, maybe the hottest topic in political discourse of the time was gay marriage. And it was, uh, it was definitely one where I found myself saying, no, I think gay marriage should be legal. And I, I think that honestly, gay marriage should be performed in the temple here. And, and that was very, very radical for my area of Utah. And um, I think that that was one of the earliest things that that made me question um, whether or not this whole system was fair. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. I'm so moved to hear that you were such a conscientious uh, ally to those uh, LGBTQ people in your <laughs> life. So I think, could you, uh, you, just as you say, kind of do stuff that makes your 16 year old self proud. I think uh, speaking from my own experience and just talking to other gay people, you can, I can remember everybody who has, ever stood up for me just to me and kind of fought that corner especially at school and you really can't underestimate the power of that kind of having an ally in a world that you think you're wrong for let's jump forward now then from being that teenage self to your relationship with masculinity now in your 20s can I ask where you're at with uh, religion and masculine identity at this point in your life so uh, as as any good Mormon boy does um, I went on a mission um, for uh, they, we often serve for two years. Um, we go to a place that we're assigned globally, um, and I was assigned to serve in Ghana in West Africa. Um, spent two years there teaching the gospel and being very, very, very orthodox. And I was constantly taught um, at that time. Now I'm 21. Uh, I'm 24 now. I mean, I was I'm 21 at this point, coming home from my mission, uh, and I'm hearing everybody literally everybody i can't think of anybody that wasn't telling me uh in in the church that it was my job now to get married like it, your goal now is to go home find a woman get married start having children grow your eternal family that was the rule and so i did i came home i got married within 18 months of being home from my mission met somebody i mean that quickly and now I stand at the end of, you know, about two and a half years after that, and I, um, I'm now divorced, and I had left the church, and that had been a big factor in, in the divorce. And I don't need to air all the dirty laundry of all of that, but I'm just aware that masculinity was so informed by the role that I had to play with those three Ps, that it was my job to preside, provide, and protect. Well... I have started my uh, undergraduate uh, degree working on that at Utah State University, um, studying social work, and I'm experiencing in many ways um, for the first time kind of the professional side of something that I had just kind of always done, which was I, Utah as a state has much higher rates of sexual assault and domestic violence um, and child sexual abuse uh, than any other state in the United States. Um, that, 
they're actually kind of in the high end for sexual assault and domestic violence, but uh, child sexual abuse is the highest. They have the highest rates of any state in the United States. And I started to learn about that, and I started to learn about the dynamics that bring about those things in my classes. It was what I was interested in working in as a field. And I started to recognize that the research was consistent and clear that a huge risk factor for men to be perpetrators of sexual or intimate partner violence is for them to have beliefs around traditional masculine norms. That the more that they adhere to traditional masculine norms, the more likely they are to cause harm to the people that they love. And knowing that, how could I continue to support a system that was churning out perpetrators of the harms that I was starting to work to try and remedy. And I started my minor in women and gender studies um, in my second year at um, Utah State University and started to learn more about all these dynamics and started to recognize all of a sudden I had language for it, which I think is the, is the biggest thing. Um, that women and gender studies has given me that feminism has given me is it gave me language to describe what I had kind of always felt in the back of my head ever since I was a teenager. I kind of thought, oh, this isn't fair. Why are women not allowed and things? And then I started to understand the terms and the and the language of feminism and feminist theory. And it helped me to start to question all of those things. And it led me down a path that I am was was um i don't know do you bleep on this podcast um <laughs> uh, it, it it was fucking difficult right I, I i i looking back it was really really hard but i think at this end of it i'm so, i'm living so much more congruently with my values and i'm and that's still a work that's still an effort i mean to um, as Bell Hook says, decolonize your mind. But I am much closer now to who I feel I want to be and uh, have have left the church. Uh, I did a soft leave. I haven't like removed my names, uh, my name from the church records. If you looked me up, I'd still be a member. But I mean, I haven't attended now for uh, getting close to a year, uh, probably a year and a half. And I started to recognize the ways that gender had been um, using or leveraging undue influence on the way that I was living my life, that I wasn't living the way I wanted to live. I was living out a script that I had been taught since I was little. And unfortunately, that meant that I had to lose some connections that I had, for example, experienced divorce, that I've uh, become more distant from friends that used to be a part of that organization and things and and um, have had to kind of find my own way but I really feel like um, it galvanized all these parts of me that were previously kept outside of the mainstream kept outside of what was acceptable it kind of brought them all together into a cohesive whole for the first time and allowed me to just feel like I was who I was supposed to be and then in turn, I think it's allowed me to be a better, better helper, a better social worker and a better, um, a better person, uh, certainly a better partner to 
women of uh, certainly a better ally to um, folks of different backgrounds um, across identities of race and sexual orientation and gender identity and class and religious backgrounds and understanding, for example, something like intersectionality, this term uh, coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, a black feminist, uh, to describe what it was like to be not just a woman and not just a black person, but be a black woman and to have all parts of her identity taken into account I, I think I see the world with that level of nuance now that I previously lacked. Bell Hooks, she writes, Loving justice for themselves and others is what enables men to break the chokehold of patriarchal masculinity. And that line has stayed with me for such a long time because I think it's very true. I found that the more that I engage in work that helps others um, be treated fair, fairly or equitably, the more I find myself demanding that I be treated fairly and equitably. I find that I have come into my identity through that work and through that effort. Um, and it was the thing that gave me the courage to finally step out of something that wasn't helpful to me that was actually causing harm. So fundamental, I think, to my identity now is my expression of masculinity. I like I said, I'm really interested in these conversations because I think I just wish I could have learned that as a as an eight-year-old or a 16-year-old, and I wish I could have done this work so much younger. And so I, I have never been more comfortable in my masculinity than I am currently now at, at the age of 24. And I, and I know that even that age, I think, oh, wow, what's that going to look like? Um, in the next 10 years, in the next 20 years. And, um, and I think that we're only just beginning to scrape the surface of this work of understanding what masculinity can be, um, of understanding what gender can be and how all of it can be expressed in ways that don't conform to the notions of masculinity or femininity. And I'm really excited. I think that the future is going to be very bright and that more people are going to be able to live in a way that's consistent with their personal values. Thank you so much for such an uh, impassioned, articulate, uh, private response to that question. Just to link back to the very first question I asked you, that sense of how can people go about reimagining masculinity and that gesture of bow hooks as well, of how you can stop critiquing something and start taking action to change something as well that sense of reading giving you the language to articulate things you've felt it feels like that could be something that people can do in the short term to start reimagining things reseeing things it, reading allows you to empathize with other people of course it's that sense of giving you that language from other people's points of view really really struck me in that answer as well i really appreciate your candor in saying how difficult it is to rewire yourself if you like that phrase of decolonizing your mind that's really really articulate way of expressing it in that sense it's graphic and it's violent and it's hard on what you said as well about that frustration of feeling like you wish you'd done this sooner I said something very similar I'm 26 now and said that to therapist the other day I wish I'd worked so much of this stuff out about gay shame years ago and he said to me James you've not been a teenager for eight years that's absolutely nothing so be kind to yourself and I think that's just really allowed for some compassion with this process just I am so moved and overwhelmed by where you're at 
at 24, I think the fact you've had such a profound uh, transformation, I think the fact you've been on that journey at 24 is absolutely staggering. So please be kind to yourself in how you feel that you wish you'd done stuff sooner. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, um, I, I just am overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude. I think about the things that led me to this point. While, while no longer a deeply um, Mormon or religious person, I still have a very intense, uh, that doesn't really leave you this intense view of the way that the world works. Because I do credit also the LDS church, the Mormon church with giving me ideas about service um, that I really truly felt like at a time in my life that it was God that was calling me to do good things and that that was stressed so strongly. And I think about all the people that have touched my life and all the service that has been rendered to me. I, I really truly believe that community is going to be one of the things that saves us, that a value around connection and community and relationships, that those values are going to be what can really build a future in which masculinity can be whole, where the people who experience that identity can um, be connected to themselves and to others. And I think that I was blessed with an area in Utah that also instilled in me a great sense of community and connection. If there's a, if there's a thing that I like keep with me from my days in the LDS Church, it's that. It's that sense of community and service that um, really, mm. I think, in, in many ways is something that can, can bring about the change that I believe is, is so important um, for men, is that shared value to find community and find connection. I think that's a lovely place to end things on, that sense of something that's caused you to question a great deal has also supported you through a great deal i think that's really really important as you say to stress that as well and uh with the greatest respect whether you like being inspiring or not i think chatting to you this afternoon has been incredibly inspiring and nourishing for me and i'm sure it would be for so many listeners so alan byers thank you so much for being here and thank you so much for sharing your story Thank you for listening. This has been Mantor, the Masculinity Conversations, brought to you by me, James McDermott, and Story Machine Productions, with music by Jordan Mallory Skinner and produced by Sam Ruddock. We're keen to talk to anyone who wants to share their experience of masculinity. If you would like to be featured in a forthcoming episode, drop us a line at storymachineproductions at gmail.com. <laughs>